Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. A big thanks to all our guests and all our listeners and to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world. Using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication, Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equity, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, Zurich, London, and Delhi. And Quilt AI believes that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. Yes, the internet has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors. Today, as we celebrate our 100th episode, we have a very special guest, Julia Gillard. Now, Julia is the chair of the Global Partnership for Education, or GPE, also Australia's first female prime minister, and also held the portfolio of Minister for Education in Australia. She's extremely well-placed to talk about education, SDG4, at a global level. Today, we'll explore GPE's work, we'll learn a bit about Julia's personal story, and we'll aim to inspire our global audience to support education and to encourage policymakers to fund quality education across the globe. My conversation with Julia took place right before Christmas, and it is an absolute pleasure to share it with you today as we celebrate the 100th episode of the Do One Better podcast. Julia, it really is an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. I'm delighted to join you. Excellent. I guess we could kick things off by finding out a little bit about GPE or the Global Partnership for Education. What's it all about? Uh, the Global Partnership for Education, I think it's best thought of as a shared commitment to ending the world's learning crisis. Uh, we're the only global partnership and fund that focuses solely on school education in lower income countries, lower income countries and lower middle income countries. So we've got around 20 years experience now working with partner countries to make sure that more girls and boys not only get access to school, but the education they have at school is a quality one. And our model for change is really about mobilising uh, donors, the UN family, philanthropists, the private sector, everyone basically behind country-led plans to transform their education system. And we're working in 76 countries around the world. So it's a broad and a deep partnership for change. Mm -hmm. And where where are you based? Are you um, where, where's the GP based? And uh, with so many partner organisations and governments, uh, how do you manage to keep everything together? The Secretariat of the Global Partnership for Education is largely based in Washington, D.C., uh, though we do have staff in other parts of the world. 
But the way the model really works is in country. Uh, we work in country through what we call local education groups. So all of the actors in a country that care about education are brought together behind the leadership of the developing country government uh, to make plans for education which are inclusive and transformative. And then GPE uh, assists with grant money for the realisation of those plans, but also with harmonising and aligning funds from other places behind mm -hmm. those plans. And of course, implementation and results are monitored every step of the way. Uh, that does mean that we work through grant agents in each country, that it can be of a different nature in different places. Uh, my job as chair is at the global level predominantly, so I chair our board of directors, uh, which is a constituency-based board. So we have uh, developing country ministers for education attend, we have representatives of donor nations attend, civil society, the private sector, private philanthropy, the UN family. Uh, so we are a convening space to talk about everything that needs to be worked through to improve education and then the real work happens within country right fascinating stuff fascinating what's the state of affairs with global education right now uh, how are we feeling about the realities on the ground today and uh, and where we want to go for the next say 10 years with the uh, with the sdg target year looming uh, just uh, 10 years away well, I guess it's kind of really tried to say now this is not the year that we expected. Uh, as 2020 comes to a close, I think most of us are counting down the days we'd quite like to be out of 2020. And of course, 2020's brought the global health crisis, the global economic crisis that's gone alongside it. But it's also brought an education crisis around the world. Kids for health reasons have been uh, you know, forced out of school schools have been closed. Now, in nations like my own, Australia, of course, that's a challenge to maintain the continuity of children's education. Uh, but we have the digital connectivity and the resources to work our way through that. In the 76 countries that are partners of the Global Partnership for Education, the degree of this challenge varies from place to place. But in most places, it's very acute. Mm. So there isn't the digital connectivity activity to easily maintain educational continuity that way. And there is a quite bitter past experience with health crises. For example, we know uh, the impact of Ebola on education mm -hmm. was profound. Uh, the most marginalised children, particularly the most marginalised girls, did not make a return to school. So as schools were locking down around the world, GPE responded and responded very quickly uh, with a $500 million fund to help countries maintain educational continuity during the crisis and to plan for the reopening of schools in a way which would mean that children are, you know, brought back to school, that we don't allow children to simply drift away, that there are endeavours made to make sure the most marginalised children return. And then when schools are back in operation to look at what's been missed mm -hmm. and what can be done to catch 
learning up so that this doesn't um, end up being a crisis that is long lived in the sense that the children who were caught by the 2020 crisis bear that learning deficit for the rest of their lives. So it's been a, a big uh, hard year in that sense. I think many in the education community remain concerned uh, that uh, the impact of COVID will be to force some of the trend lines backwards. We mm. were seeing improvements in education. GPE can point to uh, improvements that have happened with, you know, twice as many girls being enrolled in schools in partner countries. Uh, more than three quarter of our partner countries now have as many girls as boys complete primary school, and that's up from half uh, in 2002. So, you know, substantial progress, but I think we're all worried that the trend line from here could uh, push us back. It's not just the disruption of 2020, as profound as that has been, but there's also the fiscal constriction that is coming uh, because of the economic crisis. So governments in developing countries with less money to spend. Now, I think we should hear that as a challenge and a motivator to further action uh, rather than simply hearing it as a depressing piece of news. It should mm. uh, spur us on. Indeed, indeed. And so you're working with you mentioned 70 lower income countries, the degree of expertise that they might have in terms of being able to transform their own education systems, being able to drive things forward, embracing gender, gender equity and so forth, the technical expertise that they have may be limited. How can the GPE not only assist with funding, but also with technical expertise and knowledge? Yeah, it's really important uh, to us that there is a knowledge brokering and we do that in a few ways. It's inherent in the model itself uh, that uh, we work with countries. It is a country-led development model, but we work with countries uh, to assist with technical expertise. And we've purpose-designed something we call KICS, the Knowledge and Innovation Exchange, mm -hmm. which is a way of making sure that uh, knowledge, uh, new ways of working, things that are showing results that are happening in one part of the world get brokered through in real time to the educational transformation happening in another part of the world. And I think when people hear something like that, it is easy for them to imagine that the flow of knowledge is global north to global south. And of course, there is a flow of knowledge that way. But more and more, we see in GPE, in the spirit of genuine partnership, knowledge actually being brokered between developing countries about what is best working and consequently could be of use in comparable countries trees. Fascinating. Plus, also, I imagine a lot of your partner organizations, you also have a job not just in convening, but I guess in encouraging and in nudging people who are your partners to communicate with each other. Uh, yes, we do. And we constantly think about uh, and talk about at the board level that the you know, some of the partnership is incredibly important that, you know, this is not, um, you know, when people think of GPE, maybe some people might think of the Secretariat and many of them might know staff at the Secretariat who all do a wonderful job. And of course, what the GPE Secretariat does is incredibly important, but the partnership is more than that. And it is about bringing knowledge, resources, expertise, collaboration, 
from all parts of the partnership to other parts to make sure that right across we are working together and thinking about private philanthropy as one part of our partnership, uh, we have seen uh, entities share technical knowledge and expertise. We've seen that in areas like early learning. Uh, we've seen partners share resources to help knowledge uh, be brokered back and forth. Uh, private philanthropy has been incredibly important to the development of the knowledge and innovation exchange. So there are plenty of ways of being involved. Excellent, really excellent. Now, if I'm a foundation and I'm listening to you on today's episode, I am focused on SDG4, I am focused on education, but I also want to feel relevant and I want to feel that the work that my team and the foundation are doing on the ground is leading to results that I can sort of connect to, to my own initiatives. How involved can people who are backing the GPE be? in a meaningful way so that it's not just writing a check, but actually, yes, um, I'm keen to get my organization involved with GPE and, um, and I'd like to get my hands dirty a little bit. Well, first and foremost, a private foundation that becomes involved in GPE uh, can be involved in our governance structure, would be involved mm. in our governance structure. Uh, ours is a constituency-based board and the private philanthropy uh, has a seat at the table, uh, actually uh, two seats at the table because we have a, a board member and an alternate member uh, from uh, philanthropy. And the job of that board member and the alternate is to convene uh, the constituency, so all of the foundations, the private philanthropy that is interested in supporting GPE, and to uh, mobilise them in every way, to mobilise their knowledge, their technical expertise, their resources, their views on governance issues in GPE, and to bring that to the board table. So uh, in that sense, uh, everybody can be reassured that they've got a central role in helping steer the ship. And then, uh, of course, you know, program by program, country by country, there are things that uh, individual foundations or high net worth individuals can do. They might want to contribute to a particular program in our knowledge and innovation exchange. Uh, they might have a program in a country and they want to lean in more uh, behind the uh, GPE process, the planning process, the country-led model, and that when there is a good, clear, robust plan to transform transform the education system, then align their investments and efforts behind that plan. Wonderful. Wonderful. You're, you're truly a global fund. The task at hand is massive. Uh, tell us a little bit about the financial state of affairs with the fund right now and, and what you're looking to achieve in terms of replenishing the fund or funding it over the next few years. Well, we have been through a tremendous uh, period of uh, thinking and change at GPE, even though we've gone to virtual mm. working and by the time you're convening, uh, you know, people right around the world in multiple time zones and multiple languages on uh, virtual conferencing facilities, yes, it gets <laughs> a little bit complicated. Uh, but notwithstanding that, we've kept on task this year in an incredibly major way. So in addition to rolling out the emergency 
emergency COVID fund and doing all of our usual work. Uh, we have completed our strategic planning process. So mm -hmm. we have a new ambitious plan to take us through to 2025. And we are preparing now for a financing conference uh, to back that plan into action. So that financing conference will be co-hosted uh, in the middle of next year by the governments of the United Kingdom and Kenya. And that in and of itself is incredibly important to us. We, as a global partnership and global fund, have adopted a way of working around our financing that shows through the way that it's set up uh, that this is a partnership. So last time we had a financing conference, it was co-hosted by France and Senegal, by Presidents Macron and Macky Sall. It was held in Dakar. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible event uh, where people came and participated and uh, also pledged resources. And the resources pledged were uh, don donor funds from nation states, so mm -hmm. overseas development aid, uh, philanthropic funds as well, but also importantly, domestic education financing commitments from developing country partner governments. Because as we know, overwhelmingly, education in developing countries is funded by those nations themselves. The international aid is important. In some of the lowest income, most conflict-affected countries, it's a substantial percentage of what is spent on education. Uh, but, you know, as we look across the landscape, particularly across 76 countries, mm. uh, the biggest source of financing is developing countries' own resources. So pledging that those resources will be increased matters so much for making sure that every boy, every girl, every child is learning. Uh, and that spirit of partnership will be on display in the middle of next year for our next financing event. What's the scale of the challenge? Um, and tell me, so you mentioned you developed this brand new strategy uh, looking at, at where you want to go for 2025. What are the main things you're trying to to, to pinpoint? And, um, and again, what is the scale of the challenge? What are the main bottlenecks? Just uh, measuring it in uh, dollars for a moment, I mean, the scale of the global education challenge is huge. Uh, we have uh, pitched uh, for our replenishment that we want to raise at least $5 billion US um, for uh, GPE's work. But, you know, GPE is obviously part of a global movement uh, to uh, make sure that children are learning and to make sure that no child is left behind. And we do know that the world needs to lift and lift substantially if the resources are to be available to ensure that every child can be in school and learning. When we're talking about bottlenecks, they are different in different places, but a key theme for GPE is looking at gender yes. and the particular risks to girls. Uh, we know that, you know, if you're talking about the most marginalised child, the child most likely to be left behind, uh, then that is still a girl. In the world's poorest countries, you know, fewer than one in three girls complete secondary school and only two in three complete primary school. And yet we know educating girls has such a long-lived impact, not only for those girls themselves, but for their families and communities. 
communities. And so GP is hardwiring gender into everything that we do, mm. uh, as well as working in a thematic way on girls' education. And so this has taken us to doing things like training female teachers in Afghanistan. Uh, we've been building schools closer to communities where the journey to school can be uh, risky for girls and that is a big dissuading factor on girls and their families from having their girls go to school. Uh, we've been tackling uh, gender inequalities, gender stereotypes in learning materials, things that can foster a continued cycle of gender disadvantage. And we do know that that you know, that way of working uh, does have results, that mm. more girls are enrolled and learning as a result of our approaches. There would seem to be a strong cultural aspect to trying to get as many girls as boys to, to have access to education. And in many countries, it's not just being able to engage with the education ministry, but you need to take a, a holistic approach with that government and the various ministries that are involved in the overall um, outcomes. Oh, you, you're right, uh, you know, to use the uh, Hillary uh, Clinton uh, saying, uh, obviously, uh, she, uh, she, she got it from others, but uh, wrote the book on it, that it takes a village mm. uh, to raise and educate a child. It takes a whole community uh, to make sure that norms are changing, that children are in school, that education is valued. Uh, obviously, uh, poverty uh, families under huge pressure have to make very difficult decisions about what they can do with their family's time when the uh, struggle is literally getting enough for everybody to eat. Then obviously uh, choices get made about uh, should a child go to school or should a child do something that might assist the family's economic position. Um, in those uh, sorts of circumstances, things like school feeding programs can make a big difference to the preparedness of uh, communities and families to send children to school, particularly the girls. So we've always got to be sensitive to the particular context, which is why it's so important that our partnership model is developing country-led, uh, that this isn't, you know, people um, in uh, Washington or, you know, Brussels or mm. uh, London or any other sort of uh, capital around the world uh, flying in and saying, we know what you should do next. That is most certainly not our model. That is the complete opposite of the way the partnership seeks to work. Mm. Mm. No, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. And also just uh, one of the guests I had on the show a little while back, uh, Mabel Vanarangi, who, who founded Girls Not Brides, uh, the whole issue around child marriage and so forth can derail a kid's education. Yes, it can. And I've spoken to Mabel a lot and we've uh, worked together uh, because they're there are sort of uh, two sides to the uh, coin when we're talking about child marriage. Uh, you know, Mabel is uh, campaigning in such a wonderful, uh, inclusive fashion on ending child marriage, on preventing girls uh, being forced to be brides. 
Uh, but if girls are going to have a different future, then not only do they need to avoid the marriage ceremony, they need to have a school to go to. Mm. And so GPE, the education community, doing what we need to do uh, is creating the different pathway that can be pointed to for families and communities so that they don't think that the only way of their girl being, um, you know, a, 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 their girl having a future is to become a child bride, that there is another way and it's about schooling and forging her own path in life. Yeah. Now, I'm the father of two daughters and I love the fact, you know, we're putting gender front and center when it comes to, to, to looking at improving education. Now, let's tie everything up and let's um i'd love to find out a little bit about your trajectory because here we are you know i'm extremely privileged to be talking to someone who was prime minister of australia you may have faced your challenges as well and i'd love to know a little bit about your story and the message that you might have for someone who's listening to this show possibly someone who who, who may have aspirations for for public office at some point Against the backdrop that we've been talking about, uh, you know, my my journey ha has many privileges in it, but to hmm. uh, give you the, the absolute short story, uh, I was born in the United Kingdom. You can actually end up Prime Minister of Australia and not be born here. We have a very different system to the Americans in that sense. Uh, I was uh, born in Wales. Uh, I migrated with my family uh, in 1966 when I was a very small girl. Um, I was educated at the local government schools, uh, literally at the end of our street. Uh, my father, um, when he came to Australia, ultimately trained as a psychiatric nurse. He'd grown up in a coal mining village. He'd left school at 14. Uh, he found uh, his way in Australia as a psychiatric nurse. Uh, my mother worked as a cook in an aged care home. Uh, so we lived a very ordinary suburban life. And I've always been conscious that my life chances uh, have been defined by coming from a loving, stable family, but also uh, going to great schools. Fortunately, uh, those uh, government schools at the end of my street were fantastic schools. And if they hadn't been fantastic schools, my entire life would have been different. And so uh, that has always reinforced in me uh, that we shouldn't play some sort of global lottery with children's life chances and some children get a great education and millions miss out. Uh, every child in every place in the world should get a quality education and the benefits that come uh, with that and they're the benefits I've experienced in my own life, uh, which is why uh, when I uh, went into government becoming initially Deputy Prime Minister, I wanted to be Minister for Education because mm. I knew it was the change agent. And here I am all these years later, uh, chairing the Global Partnership for Education and urging people to, uh, you know, raise their hand. We're asking people, will you raise your hand for education and be part of the campaign uh, to mobilise new resources and new ways of working? Mm, wonderful story. In terms of um, what drives you in the morning, I mean, is education the key thing for you, really, that you're thinking, you know, when somebody's going to be looking back at Julia Gillard 50 or 100 years from now, what is it? 
Uh, well, I'm in that stage of my life where uh, I can say uh, the first line of my obituary is already written. It will inevitably record that I was the 27th Prime Minister of Australia and the first woman to uh, lead this nation. So uh, in some ways, I don't have to worry about any of that anymore. Uh, that job's done. Uh, so I uh, can do the things that I've been passionate about. I've been passionate about education all my life. It was the driving impulse that took me into politics. Uh, and I spend time doing that now. I focus a great deal on women's leadership. Uh, I believe that it starts with educating a girl and it ends with women leaders. And I devote my time to, to some other causes, including uh, mental health and health and medical research. Wonderful. Success for the next 10 years. If we're having a coffee in 10 years time and looking back, what would success look like? Well, if I could start with the very short term, I would say that people flooded uh, to raiseyourhand.net and join the campaign for education. And in 10 years' time, we could look back and say uh, that uh, the pandemic world was a change point uh, where we came to realise in a more profound way what helps us shape a good future for individuals, for countries, for the planet. And it all became about education and that, you know, in the years beyond the pandemic, it was part of what we did to build back better, to create fantastic life chances for children, mm. even in the most impoverished and difficult and conflict-affected circumstances. Mm. Is there one key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind today after they finish listening to today's episode? I think the key takeaway really is um, keep keep going. I think, you know, this year uh, in so many ways, I mean, there's been around the world so uh, so much death, so much ill health, so much economic pain, so much stress and tension and anxiety. We've been kept away from uh, each other, from, you know, uh, giving each other a handshake, a hug. It's been such an odd time. And when we've lived through times like this, I think it's easy to turn inward. But actually, I think what uh, history is calling us to do is to uh, recognise from this moment our con common humanity and turn towards each other, turn outwards. Uh, so however we're feeling at the end of 2020, uh, please take that with you into what I hope will be a better 2021. Yeah. Common humanity, indeed. Julia, it really, it has been a, a true pleasure speaking with you today, learning about the Global Partnership for Education, and learning a little bit more about the, the monumental task ahead and how people and foundations and partners from around the world might be able to get involved and, uh, and help you drive things forward. So thank you very much for your time. And to our audience, thank you as always for listening. You've been listening to Julia Gillard. Uh, chair of the Global Partnership for Education, uh, former Prime Minister of Australia, and, uh, and an inspiration in the world of education. So, Julia, thank you so much. Thank you, Alberto. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories 
will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.